If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to the January 6th, 2020 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. The world's longest running lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender radio show, now including the queer and intersex communities in our mission statement and proudly promoting our allies. Hello, I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Vosh Bodhi. Tonight, we revisit Steve Pride's conversation with actor-writer Ryan O'Connell, whose semi-autobiographical memoir, I'm Special and Other Lies We Tell Ourselves, became the Netflix series Special, starring Ryan O'Connell. And on Storytellers, we'll meet Rashida, Jerry, and Hendrix Mungin. But before all that, we have to spill some tea. The honest tea. So, Vash, we have a lot of news to cover in the first week of 2020, and I thought we could do a little bit of a, let's look back and let's see where we're headed. Fantastic, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Thank you. Now, in theadvocate.com, which is one of my favorite resources to go to, we are seeing a wonderful comprehensive review of this past year and the past decade and kind of, you know, where we're heading, as I said. Right. I know. Isn't that exciting? Mm -hmm. So the title of the article that caught my attention says, LGBTQ Americans have cause for anxiety and hope in the 2020s. There may be a lot of darkness before the dawn. And this is by John Casey from January 2nd. Wow. Firstly... I love the fact that there is hope (laughs) and cause for anxiety because it seems to me that it is a very realistic look at where we've been in like the last year. 2019 was very interesting. Well, some of the hopeful reasons and this being Hollywood that we live in, certain things kind of stand out to me. And this is going to be a transition year that John Casey, the writer of the article, mentions about 2020. I believe that too. It feels like a transition year, especially with an election coming up. Absolutely. Let's hope that's a transition. (laughs) Indeed. Well, what were some of the things that were in the article that you thought, oh, wow. Well, you know, this is going to be the second time that we're saying goodbye to the series Will and Grace on NBC after three years of of its reboot. Also to Schitt's Creek on Netflix, which is going to be doing its last season. And I think about Will and Grace and how important it was. I know that Ellen really set the stage for Will and Grace to happen, but Will and Grace was the first series on network television that had a gay character as one of the title characters. I mean, his name's in the title of the show. Right. So, and it made gay hip. It made gay Will and Jack on that show. It gave a lot of, it just introduced America to our LGBTQI community. 
a step at a time, obviously, not the whole community, but a part of it in a way that just kind of normalized it for everyone. It's like, look, we're no different than you. We're just a part of your fabric that makes this country. And what I think it also did, because what you said is so right on, what it also did is, as we talk about what initialism we want to use, whether it's LGBT, LGBTQ, LGBTQI, LGBTQIA, Will and Grace introduced us to LGBTQIA because there was Grace standing so proudly next to her gay best friend. Yeah, we had we had a gay cisgendered male living with an ally. Completely showing how normal and almost beneficial it could be. Yeah, because there weren't always agreements. They had a lot of disagreements too. But at the end of the day, their commonalities is what kept them together. The love that they had for each other and the respect and support that they had for each other. For each other, which was really super fantastic. So, wow, Will was the first lead male or gay male. Will was the first lead male character in a sitcom. Yeah. Now, Ellen came out during the course of her show. Right. And then, then there was a lot of controversy about that afterwards. And fortunately, that show ended not long after uh, she came out publicly. But then not long after that show ended, then that's when NBC launched Will and Grace. And that was a big step forward for our community. And yeah. I'm really grateful for that. And the fact that it came back and reintroduced um, our entire you know, worldwide community to the show that was so important to us. Yeah. So, and then that made Schitt's Creek possible with the characters of David and Patrick. And not, it, it wasn't always like, just Jack, you know, it was, you know, just kind of flamboyant and things like that. There was a lot of things about David and Patrick's relationship on Schitt's Creek that is very just normal and boring. Right. You know, and that's another way, I think, of showing how, you know, we're just a part of that big fabric that, that everybody's a part of. Yeah. And I didn't really watch Schitt's Creek, so I feel a little, uh, a, a little, uh, out of the loop in a way. But I kind of thought I remember reading that what made his character so special was that he was more pansexual than gay. That's true. Yeah, Eugene Levy uh, created is one of the creators of the show, along with his brother. And then his son, uh, Daniel Levy, plays uh, the character of David on the show and plays his son on the show as well. Yeah, and he they started he started out having a relationship with the uh, one of the co-owners of of the hotel, of the motel there and then uh, has now been in a long-term relationship with uh, a male character, one of the proprietors of the local businesses in the town. Wow. Yeah. So, and that is, it's, yeah, so I guess pansexual would be a wonderful way, of, a, a, a correct way of, of describing that relationship. And introducing, you know, people to the world that continues to be the rainbow that is LGBTQI. Absolutely. One thing I would like to point out about this article, because, you know, sometimes here at IMRU, we are real sticklers about what initialism we use. And the fact that they use LGBTQ and not LGBTQI to me shows a degree of growth. I often say that speaking about intersex shows the actual natural occurrence of LGBTQI people and the different variations that are the intersex variations. So when we talk about human rights on the planet and LGBTQ rights and we don't talk about intersex, we really are doing ourselves a disservice because now we have to fight for people to like start thinking about what intersexes and how it does really apply to the LGBTQI community. It's true. And well, you know, it's like watching a quilt being made and we have to add another panel to that quilt and quilting takes time. Mm -hmm. And so this growth in recognizing all those letters within our expanding community, it's happening. 
And so that's why we that's why we have these conversations here, and that's why we spill the honest tea every week. Indeed. Yeah. And to take your analogy, I don't see I as being just another letter added. I see the intersex people as being the thread that makes the fabric, that makes the quilt in the first place. And that's the paradigm shift that is necessary when we start to use, and why we need to start using LGBTQI, not just LGBT+. I love that. I, I, that's a strong thread. We're going to keep it. <laughs> that, will keep our, that will keep our quilt together for years. I love it. And speaking of our, our, our quilt, it just, just doesn't cover our little piece of the neighborhood. You know, it should be worldwide. It should be a worldwide quilt. And there's an article in also in theadvocate.com, a fascinating new uh, pictorial book about the Shinjuku district in Tokyo, which has the highest concentration of gay and lesbian bars in the world in one city block. They have 350 bars. Wow. Okay, first of all, let's put this into context. If you have that many bars, Japan is cons- a very condensed uh, city and community. How big are these bars? Well, let me back tech just for a second because I just about fell out on myself when I read that and I almost bought a plane ticket. <laughs> <laughs> but then I read that uh, it, the bars are about the size, some of them are about the size of a living room, but not your standard U.S. living room. Some of them are maybe 40 square feet and seat between four and 10 people. Wow. Mm-hmm. So it's really an intimate meeting space for people to come and really be able to be themselves. Yeah. Now, keep in mind that 3.4 million people pass through the Shinjuku station every day. This, what they called a neighborhood. I don't know a lot of neighborhoods with the 3.4 million people going through them in the course of a day. But it's a business district by day, and it's an adult arena by night, you know, featuring just about every, what they said, taste available within that LGBTQI community. And each bar is hosted by a mama. And this person is the center of that bar. And they greet people and they keep conversation going. They decide on the music and the entertainment and they help connect everybody in that experience, in that space. Wow. I found that fascinating. Now, there is a documentary called Queer Japan. And we have spoken to the, uh, the director Graham Colbeans, who did a whole thing about all of Japan. And only a small part is about Shinjuku. And it just looks amazing because you do have this community of the rainbow from drag queens, trans men and trans women, lesbians, you name it, it seems to be there. Yes, and, and we, could, we can learn from our neighbors. Yes. And that's, and that's why I think it's important to tell stories that are just not a part of our neighborhood. And so that, that really stood out to me. But there was a particular uh, a comment or a quote that I wanted to pull and share with you and with our, you know, that really stood out to me. And this is why I wanted to talk about this story, that bars in Shinjuku are also secret living rooms, living rooms, yeah. Yeah, where we can share our stories, where everyone can be who they want to be. And at the end of the day, we should, ha- we should all have that opportunity to be who we feel we are, our authentic selves. I would like to have that walking around the streets of Lo- like Los Angeles on a daily basis. Where can we go where we can find 350 living rooms in one, in one city block and just go from door to door to door and, and be greeted by Mama? Exactly. You know, Make be it- like living in Chicago, the musical. Mama greets us at the door. And we go in there and we're part of the fabric of so many people's lives of so many different kinds of people's lives. I, I just to me that's like that would be my Oz. 
That would be my odds. Click your heels three times. You already have the power to get there. Thank you, darling. You are so welcome. And speaking of power, mm -hmm. we have Marvel Studios. They are set to launch. Launch? <laughs> That's not the proper way to say it. Marvel Studios is going to introduce the... Filmatic. No, that's not right. Marvel Studios is going to. This <laughs> just in <laughs> from BBC.com. Marvel, Marvel to get first transgender superhero. So in the 2020s, this decade, within the next couple of years, because they're filming it right now. We don't know what the film is, but they're filming it right now. A film that's going to have a major character as our first transgender superhero. Let me ask you a question, and this is just sort of a general trans question. Mm -hmm. When you hear a transgender superhero, what is your first thought about what and how that superhero will present? Probably most likely female to male. You think female to male? Yeah. Interesting. I was thinking male to female. Oh. I was thinking that that would be the way they would present. And it would be interesting to see because, you know, so often... I've heard from, from trans men is that when people think of trans, they think of male to female, but they are hoping to have way more visibility as well. So uh, I can't wait to find out. Well, what we are tossing is. that corn. Yeah. That We are tossing that, co not the corn, we're corn. tossing that coin. Corn? What do I eat? Corn. <laughs> so now some people think the trans character will be linked to Tessa Thompson's character, Valkyrie, on the winged horse. And Tessa just happens, I'm, I'm going to get a, I have to get a broom, you know, got to clean up because I'm going to drop a name. Yeah, Tessa's a, a friend of mine, and I'm just thrilled that perhaps it's linked to her character, Valkyrie. So we'll see. That could be awesome. Yeah. Now, Kevin Feige is Marvin Studios' boss, and he announced this wonderful news during a Q&A at the New York Film Academy. He says, in a movie, like I stated, we're shooting right now. So this is not something, in the, you know, that we're thinking about doing. This is something that's actually happening. Now, in the world of superheroes, there's Marvel and there's DC. Mm -hmm. It seems like, are you saying that Marvel is going first to the big screen? To the big screen. Okay. Because on the small screen, DC is leading the pack. That's okay. for sure. With LGBTQI characters in the landscape of, of the uh, fare that they offer. Absolutely. They're definitely leading the pack. But uh, following up on the heels of last week's Honest Tea, where we talked about you know the strides that we were making in, um, in television, we weren't making the same strides on the big screen. So it's really important. And just, just quickly, uh, this year in 2020, The Eternals will introduce Marvel Movies' first gay character. This year, in 2020. And that's me ruffling my notes. That's me ruffling. Additionally, we'll, uh, they will also introduce its first deaf superhero in The Eternals and its first Asian-American superhero in Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings. So I think we're making lots of strides for our allies, for other uh, members of our community that we just mentioned, and definitely within our LGBTQI community. So we have a lot to look forward to. It's 2020. Let's create one global family 2020 get that clear lgbtqi vision and that's the honest tea don't go away we'll be right back after this quick break richard amsell and his art coming up now on the rainbow minute ask most 10 year olds what they want to be when they grow up and they won't have a clue but richard amsell had no doubt walking out of a theater with his sister he said he was going to be a movie poster illustrator Eventually, Amsell illustrated movie posters for Raiders of the Lost Ark, The Sting, and dozens of other hit movies. 
As one of the top poster artists of the late 20th century, his posters were often more memorable than the movies themselves. With an innate gift for capturing a persona, he also created 37 illustrations of celebrities for TV guide covers in the 70s and 80s, which placed his work on 20 million coffee tables across America. Unfortunately, Amsell died at age 37 from AIDS complications in 1985. But many illustrators have filled his shoes by emulating his style. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Noah Scalin. Hello, I'm Randall Kleiser, director of Grease, Blue Lagoon, White Fang, and It's My Party, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Vosh Bodhi. An ally is a person who is not LGBTQI, but uses their privilege to support LGBTQI people and promote equality. They are often overlooked, but not on tonight's Storytellers. Within our ever-expanding LGBTQI plus community, there are many heartfelt, challenging, intriguing, and entertaining stories to tell. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and this is Storytellers. Today I'm talking with Rashida and Jerry Mungin, mother and daughter, here in Charlotte, North Carolina. And that's Hendrix in the background. You're going to learn more about him later. So he's going to be very much a part of this experience. I think it's very important to include the voices of our allies in our LGBTQ plus community. And for me, the plus in LGBTQ plus is ally. And I think the two of you are very much allies for our community. How have the two of you become such what I deem as incredible allies? Rashida, you want to start with this one? I started out working in New York City as a nurse, and I worked at an AIDS organization teaching yoga to a bunch of retired gay males, and they kind of really taught me a lot about stillness, yoga, and about their struggles with seeing their friends get sick during the pinnacle of the crisis, of the AIDS crisis. I always love to give of my time outside of nursing, and that started me just understanding more about the community, that side of the community. What years would those be that you were in New York working? Teaching yoga <laughs> to retired gay men. Right. And here you were the teacher, but you were being taught. Well, that was actually in the 2000s. So it was kind of after everyone was on, you know, antiretroviral medicine and everything is kind of different where more, it's more of a chronic disease. But they told me through the course of yoga and all of that that we shared together their experiences back in the 80s. So Jerry, the lovely, youthful, vivacious mother of Rashida Munjan, tell us how you feel that you've been an ally for the LGBTQ plus community. Thank you very much, Michael. I've always been the type of person who's very inclusive. I love all people. I remember that I lived in California for 30, 35 years, Northern California, and I had a friend. She was a co-worker. She had a brother who lived in Southern California, and he was sick. Some days, she'd just come in the office, in my office, and close the door, and I'd just hug her, and she'd just cry. 
and he eventually died. It was devastating to her. And it was devastating to me because I felt like I almost knew him from interacting with her. Rashida was born in 1976. When I raised her, she was always a very compassionate, inclusive person. Just as she said that she helped people, she was teaching yoga. We both taught yoga, actually. But she was teaching yoga in the gay community. Our families have bonded and grown closer and closer over the past four years, since 2015. Children, in particular, have become an integral part in both yours and Christopher and Justin Dickerson, my nephew and his husband. So with that in mind, Rashida Munjan, this is your life. How did your journey to become a parent begin? I was living in New York at the time, and I was getting closer to 40 years old. And I told myself, you know, if I hit 40 and I haven't met that right person, I really want to be a mother. So I decided I had worked in labor and delivery, and I met a few women who had gone through IVF, in vitro fertilization, and they called it single moms by choice. And they were so proud of their decision. They were women with great careers. They just said this is a great decision for someone to make if you want to be a mom. So I talked it over with my mom, with my family. Everyone was very supportive, and I froze my eggs. When I moved to North Carolina, I decided to go ahead and move forward to become a mom. Jerry Mungin, mom, she's not grandma, she's Gaga. I'm hanging out with Gaga right now. What were those first conversations like? What Do you remember the feelings and, and the thoughts that kind of ran through you at that time? She actually talked to her dad and me together. We both knew that she'd be a wonderful mom. We had no doubt about that. There was a little concern about the single mom, how she would be able to do that all by herself with not a lot of support. But we figured that we would figure it out. Dad was very supportive. Her brother was very supportive. And then in 2014, both her dad and her brother died within five weeks of one another. She certainly wanted to continue to do this because she'd already talked it out with them. And Hendrix actually carries both their names. He has two middle names. In a very short amount of time, a lot of change and a lot of refiguring what makes your family. Take us through that. My husband died of duodenal cancer in February, actually. February 28th. Her birthday is the 29th of 2014. And then five weeks later, my son, my only son, her brother, had a seizure. And he passed away after about five days. We were devastated. We're a small family. You know, our nucleus family is just four of us. So we were cut by 50%. Both the guys gone. So now it's the two of you, mom and daughter. What is that first conversation like for the two of you about the next step that you take in your life as a family? Well, it was interesting because what I did, I'd been living in North Carolina. So what I did was I put everything in storage, put my house up to be rented, and I moved to New York into her apartment. And we lived together there for a year. And we went places, we went to shows and movies, and we just did a lot of bonding. She froze her eggs at that time while I was there with her for the year. And then when we came back, we both moved back here. She decided she'd come back with me after a year. Here meaning North Carolina. Then one day we were just, she had a job. She was in labor and delivery. And I said, Rashida, what are you going to do with those eggs? And what mother doesn't go to her daughter and say, what are you going to do with those eggs? 
So was it New York when you decided to have the process of having the eggs drawn and, and frozen? It was. It was. I had been dating, but I hadn't. That's the wonderful Hendrix, who, who will be a part of this interview throughout this process. He's a terrific two-year-old. He's going to be a part of this experience because we were not going to exclude him. It took a lot of work to get him here. We're not going to put him out of the room. Yeah, so you have that done. What were those conversations like about leaving New York and relocating to North Carolina for you in particular? Well, I was kind of ready. I had been in New York for seven years and I really enjoyed myself, but I think I was ready for a new phase in life. So it seemed like a good ending, especially with the passing of my dad and my brother to kind of start a new chapter. So it seemed like a good decision. Here you are in North Carolina and you move into this lovely home and then... Not too long after, a couple of young men, very important to me, my nephew, Christopher, and his now husband, Justin, moved down the block. So tell me, how did that relationship start to develop? I think I met Christopher first. I was going to the mailbox, and he was sweeping on his porch, and we just started talking. And then all of a sudden, he's just a very friendly person, very nice. And we just started talking in the mornings and we started walking together. And then all of a sudden, I was telling him about what I was going to do with my dreams of becoming a mom. And he was so supportive about it. He just became my best friend. This is Michael Taylor Gray with Storytellers on IMRU. And you're listening to my interview with Rashida and Jerry Munjan. And that's Hendrix in the background. This is where that bond is. This is where you guys have been such wonderful allies in each other's lives. You are now in the process of harvesting, if that's the right word, those eggs and, and then going through the process of having them implanted. So take us through that process. Three eggs made it and then we got them all genetically tested and only one was pretty much sound where it would go on to be a viable baby. So just had that egg implanted and I kind of told myself if it happens, that's great. If it doesn't, you know, I'm going to do something different with my life. I'll just see if this is the one. You're going through in vitro fertilization. They usually implant multiple eggs, and that's why you get some of those multiple births. But you had one implanted, and that one took. When that happened, when your daughter, when Rashida found out that that egg fertilized and had took, Miss Gaga, what emotions ran through you when you found out you were going to be a Gaga? I was so very excited. Um, I don't know. I forget the percentage that take with one egg like that. But it's small. And when she danced into my room, she had done the, the little test that you get from the uh, drugstore. We weren't supposed to, but she couldn't wait. So she did that. And when she danced into my room that third day with that line that was down, that deep line, I almost fell out of bed. I was so excited. And she was dancing. I forget what song it was. She loves to dance. She danced in and I was, really? And she said, yes, mom. I was so excited. I didn't know what to do with myself. Hendrix shares that love of dance. So she's pregnant. How far along into that pregnancy did you get some news that was a little concerning for you? That was at the 20-week anatomy scan where the woman, that the, the tech, was very chatty. And then all of a sudden, once she got to his heart, she just stopped talking. And then I kind of knew something wasn't right and found out that he had what they call transposition of the great arteries. And that's where the circulation is reversed. So he would have to have open heart surgery when he was born, which was pretty devastating to find out at that time. 
the good news about it was that I knew before, so I knew what I would experience once he was born, that he would become a little blue and that they'd have to take him away quickly. I don't know. It still was. It was very scary when I first got that news. Do you think your chosen profession, given your mom's description of you immediately as a child, really caring, nurturing nature that you have, that's really your spirit. Do you think that that helped temper any kind of deep fear or did, did that matter at all? I think now looking back at it, after now that I've gone through the experience, the whole surgery and everything, it made me a better nurse for people because I think I understood on a cerebral level what it felt that your baby's going to be going to the NICU. But after it happens to you, I really could understand and I think I could be more present with my patients than I was before. What's the NICU? Explain that. That's the neonatal intensive care unit and he was actually in the cardiac cardiac intensive care unit. Similar, but it's just babies with cardiac issues that are there. Did your being a nurse help you? Or in that moment, were you just 110% mom? I think then reacting to it, I was definitely just a mom reacting. When he came home and the care that we had to give him at first with his feeding tube and everything, your nurse kind of kicks in. I don't know. At that moment, I was like, you know, I probably am the perfect mother for this child. Bless you. That was Hendrix. He's finding creative ways of being a part of the conversation, which I love. Miss Gaga, Grandma, Jerry Munjin. Were you with her when she got this news? Oh, yes, because I went to every appointment with her. So I was there. I was scared. But I've always been this way. Be stoic outside. Be strong for your children. So I was trying to, you know, I put on my big girl pants and I was trying to act as strong as I could. But I was scared. We did a lot of research. She did hers. I did mine. We saw the doctors, the cardiologist that was going to work on him. We met the cardiologist. We had a tour of the cardiac intensive care unit. They did everything they could to show us what we were going to be walking into so that it would kind of help mitigate the fear. It did help. How did my nephew and his husband play a part in this process, Rashida? They were there every day. Christopher was there when Hendrix was born, which was really sweet. He was just there every day. He never missed a day. He always came. He even put gas in my car. He drove Hendrix and I home 30 days after Hendrix was able to come home. Both of them, Justin and Christopher, were a presence, just a caring presence. We played games together, just everything. It was just wonderful, just so supportive. What did that support mean for you, Jerry, as the Miss Gaga's grandma? What did that support mean for you? It just meant the world, not only knowing that they were there. I mean, they thought of everything. They brought us food. We didn't have to worry about how we were going to eat. And they were just so supportive because we didn't have a lot of family right here in this area. So they were just like family. It's like they were our brothers coming to take care of us. And I remember Hendrix had a couple of issues in the ICU there. All the nurses were running. They locked down and we couldn't get in. They wouldn't tell us anything. And Christopher went in there and he told that nurse, he said, you have got to come out and tell them something. And they came out and told us what they knew. But he did that. He just was not going to have us out there so scared, not knowing what was going to happen. How have the spirits of your son, your husband, your father, your brother, how have they been a part of this process for you? How have they been supportive 
Jerry, we want to go first. Your husband, your son. We always feel their presence. Sometimes I'll say to Rashida, what would dad say in this situation? What would dad do? Sometimes we'll see little things that Hendrix does, and it'll remind us of some things that Latif did. Latif was my son. We feel them all the time. And I sometimes think of how proud my husband, Ted, would be of this little boy. My son, Latif, gosh, he'd be so happy with him. Your dad, your brother, Rashida, how have their spirits been a part of this for you? I have an altar that I have upstairs with my brother's picture and my dad's picture and a book that my brother used to read. Sometimes I just kind of silently call on their wisdom to kind of guide me through different things. So that's kind of how I feel them, their spirit. Was there a moment when you stopped holding your breath, when you actually exhaled and said, I'm good? Jerry, was there a moment when you exhaled? I think when we got him home. The day that we brought him home, he might have had to come home with a tube that was inserted in his belly, and we really didn't want that. And they decided, I think, because Rashida was a nurse and had some medical background, that it'd be okay to just send him home with a feeding tube through his nose. And when we got him home, we were just so happy. It wasn't like we didn't think he'd ever come home, but just walking in the door with him, that was the moment for me. Was there a moment for you, Rashida, as a mother, where you exhaled? I think it was when he passed his year, the echocardiogram, and the doctor said everything looked great, that I was thinking, whew, good. Everything seems like he's hit a big milestone. He's got gone through a lot. You held your breath for a year, eight months, and some change. That's pretty amazing. Kudos to the both of you for having this, what I call an exhaled, a faithful sigh of relief. Rashida, what is your greatest hope? For your son Hendricks? I think just that he be happy and that he's living a, a life of integrity, whatever that means to him. Just that he is happy. Gaga, Grandma, Jerry, what is your greatest hope for your Grand Gaga, Hendricks? My greatest hope for Hendricks is that he's happy, healthy, and that he finds his purpose in life and goes towards it. I think you're both giving him a steady course, a clear course, a well-chartered course, and a faithful course. He's only two, but he's well on his way. Anything else you'd like to add? That's right. Gaga got a shout-out from Hendrix. Thank you, Jerry, now known forever as Miss Gaga. And then Rashida, and thank you. You're an inspiration for your faith and for your patience, for your kindness, and for your willingness to just open your heart to possibilities. And when we do that, look what we get. You've been listening to Storytellers. What's your story? Allies are extremely underrated, and we are everywhere, because just because people are within just the LGBTQI definition doesn't mean that we're allies for each other. No, and I thought it was so important to tell Jerry and Rashida and Hendrix's story, living just two doors down, you know, from my nephew and his husband, right. and the beautiful relationship that has developed uh, over the last several years and how they have become such an integral part of each other's lives. It's kind of the way we would hope the world would be in 2020. Absolutely. Nice. And with that in mind, don't go away. We'll be right back. 
the Richard Amsell Illustration Collection, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. As one of the most important poster artists of the late 20th century, Richard Amsell's celebrity portraits have achieved iconic status. As a former student at the University of the Arts in Philadelphia, it is fitting the Richard Amsell Illustration Collection be reposited at his alma mater for further examination by students and scholars. The collection includes over 500 pieces, including the movie poster for Raiders of the Lost Ark, Bette Midler album covers, and TV guide covers with celebrity portraits. After Amsell died of AIDS complications in 1985, his works were cataloged by university classmate Gary Brelow. Close friend Dorian Hannaway donated Amsell's works to the university in 2009 and painstakingly supervised Amsell's inaugural display in the Rosenwald Wolf Gallery, thereby securing Amsell's legacy for posterity. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Noah Scalin. Hi, I'm Amanda Burse, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Vash Bodhi. Last year, Steve Pride sat down with writer-actor Ryan O'Connell, and it went something like this. This is Steve Pride, bringing you Pride Out Loud tonight with... My name is Ryan O'Connell. I'm a writer, and I'm the author of I'm Special and Otherwise We Tell Ourselves. So are you special? You tell me! It's radio, so I want to do the visual. You are handicapped. Yeah. I have cerebral palsy. And what is that? The actual dictionary term is just trauma that can happen during the birth, and then that will manifest as muscular incoordination or speech disturbances. My case is much more on the mild scale. It can go from mild to wild. So I don't think cerebral palsy really looks the same on everyone. I think you can dress it up. You can dress it down. It runs the gamut. When all this stuff happens is when you're growing, your muscles are growing, and blah, 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 and then you plateau. But the doctors have told me that even though we're not going to die earlier than everyone else, apparently our muscles and our bodies are aged 10 years ahead. So, like, I'm 30 years old, but I apparently have the body of a 41-year-old. But I don't believe that. You just have to take care of yourself. Having cerebral palsy, I think the onus is really on me to make sure that I'm healthy and functional because I feel like I would pay for it in larger ways than an able-bodied person would. I had a stroke about 11 years ago, and Mm -hmm. I lost the use of my left hand Mm -hmm. and I'm weak on that side. And the physical challenges, there are a lot of them. It's just tying my shoes. I can't do it. Mm -hmm. But um, I get really upset when someone says, oh, you're so brave. Yeah, I know. It's condescending. It's like, what choice do I have? That's definitely an annoying thing to say, but I think that people just don't know how to interact with people who have disabilities because I think there's just a complete lack of dialogue around it. So... It comes off as condescension. They're like well-meaning, but it's almost like not their fault because we've been so marginalized and kind of fallen through the cracks that just no one knows what to do with us. I think your book is unintentionally inspiring. Oh, wow. Um, Well, tell me about your childhood. I grew up in Ventura, which is an hour north of here. I always say it's like Laguna Beach with like a pinch of meth. It was weird. My life was kind of a swirl of being at school, just having friends, and then going to physical therapy all the time. Because when you're younger, cerebral palsy has much more of a starring role in your life because people don't really know how things are going to work out for you. Like, everything is very TBD. So you have to be really involved with therapy. And I had surgeries a lot when I was younger. There was a major duality going on between my life at school and then my life 
after school and I deeply resented CP and like how it made me different than everyone else and having to have all these surgeries and I spent two weeks in a full body cast up to here which was so weird and I had an Achilles tendon lengthening surgery and I was had to be in a wheelchair for like four months and all that stuff but everyone was super chill my parents didn't have money but I was on financial aid so I went to a private school and I had really small classes which were like 14 kids and we were all a family because there were so few of us so that really really brought a lot of acceptance into my life it's so funny because I actually never encountered any kind of bullying which is crazy because I'm gay and disabled literally like there's a, a bullseye there should be um, on me but my parents were very very aware of keeping me a little bit sheltered from that and it was so amazing because I hated myself so much just by virtue of being gay and disabled that I can't imagine having like outside people hate me too. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like the biggest bully in my life was myself. I can't imagine having to deal with like an actual bully. I can't. That was really helpful for me in a lot of ways. When did you come out? 17. How? I met a boy that I really liked and I kind of just knew that in order to be with him, I had to come out. So I came out to everyone in two weeks. I had like a coming out tour. I like told everyone I knew. I had a coming out party too at my house. I like did a big gay reveal and I filmed like a video and all that stuff and had like gift bags for everybody. No one cared about me being gay. I grew up in a very accepting environment, but you just are taught to feel shame because of society and all that stuff. My relationship with my disability was much harder than being gay. Being gay initially felt like a troll because I felt like being gay and disabled, there was no chance of me ever finding someone. But beyond that, though, like once I got over it, being gay was sort of a non-issue for me. In the book, you talk about kind of being closeted about your disability, working remotely and stuff like that. Yeah. What happened was, is I didn't really mention CP growing up at all. No one talked about it. They kind of just knew that it was a no-go zone. When I was 20, I got hit by a car and I developed compartment syndrome in my left arm which is when the oxygen supply is, gets cut off to the muscles. So actually my left hand is only like 50% functional. So that was really hard and very devastating to have that loss. But then I went to New York six months after I got hit by a car to go to school. And everyone there assumed that my limp and everything was from my accident. And in my mind, I felt like being an accident victim was like much more relatable because anyone can get hit by a car. Whereas to me, cerebral palsy felt very foreign and not relatable at all. I felt like there was a stigma attached to it. Whereas getting hit by a car, there's no stigma. It's like, oh my God, bummer. Jesus, that's so unfair. So I just rewrote my identity and I kind of threw cerebral palsy into the garbage. And I just lived life as an accident victim for many years. But that obviously posed problems. Like the first three years I was like living, laughing and like loving. But when you're not being honest about who you are, there's going to be problems. And I always say it's hard to run from who you are, especially if you have a limp. So eventually I kind of had to face the disabled music. You've brought the funny to cerebral palsy now. Cerebral palsy. Yeah, I try. (laughs) Well, that's the only way to do it. I mean, that's my law lens. I look through a law lens. You just sort of have to. Otherwise, it gets too bleak lively. It's like the way to cope. And also, it's a way to normalize things. Because if you get people laughing about an uncomfortable subject, it makes people feel at ease with it. And that's sort of what I want to do. I just want people to feel comfortable about it. And I want them to feel like it's not this kind of scary thing to talk about, you know? Did you find it's not them but you? Yeah, half-half, actually. I think that I made it in my mind to be this monster that it wasn't. Most people don't care. They really don't. 
But again, it's a lack of education. It's ignorance. Disabled people are an interesting marginalized group because you can't hate us. Like, it's illegal. Like, no one's going to, like, yell out of a car, yell like, gimp. It's just not allowed. So we're just ignored. (laughs) We're not even, like, interesting enough to troll. (laughs) You know what I mean? And that's its own kind of exquisite kind of pain, you know, to feel invisible. I feel like being disabled is being highlighted, but then also being discarded. You're so visible and people see you and you see them seeing you. And then you also see them erase you, like, in real time. And that's hard. But again, it's just because disabled people don't have a voice. They just don't. So it's sort of like you can't completely blame them for not knowing. And now it's up to the culture and for people with disabilities to talk about this stuff openly. And hopefully that will lead to a better education. Well, your CP is mild, you said. so. Very mild, yeah. One of the things I share with Jerry is that when we go into a bar during the day, mm-hmm. walking from the door. Oh, they the think you're drunk. Yeah, it's like, can't serve you, sir. Yeah, I get that too. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. In, in college, there was a lot of bouncers being like, "Hey, is your friend okay? Is your friend okay?" He seems to be like, and I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, I, I get that a lot." And it's always at the moment you think you're hiding it so well. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like, I have a very pronounced limp. I mean, I will never be able to pass as able body. There's just no way. It's weird. Like, it's so odd to me. Like, I just wrapped work on Will and Grace, and I worked on um, the Universal lot. And I would walk from, I take Ubers because, like, I can't drive. And I would take an Uber from the from the gate to our offices, which was, like, a 15-minute walk. And every day I would have, without fail, people in their little carts offering me rides, asking me if I was okay. I've had people ask me if I need to go to the hospital. And it's so funny because I'm, like, in pretty good shape. Like, I work out five days a week. Like, I'm very strong. And I feel like when I walk, I mean, I, I don't have any perception of it because I can't see myself. But it's, like... Does it look like I'm wincing in pain? Like, I'm just confused. I actually, like, don't understand. I'm like, ow, ow. Like, am I just screaming? I don't understand. People just look at me, like, so concerned. And I'm just like, it's so bizarre to me because I'm just like, I'm fine. But I guess I look like I'm really not fine. It was really crazy. I mean, the book itself was not a success, which was kind of funny. I mean, it sold, like, nothing. But before it came out, the manuscript had gotten into Jim Parsons' hands And he was just starting up a production company called That's Wonderful, and he really responded to it. And so I met with him, and he was amazing, so nice. And I've dealt with a lot of actors before, and usually they're some level of crazy. And he was actually, like, eerily normal and sweet. It was almost like, wait, like, what's going on? So we really connected. And then because Hollywood is such a weird town, Jim being interested in it created this buzz. And so we ended up having four studios bid on it. But I went with Jim because... I just trusted him and because we got along and he was like a human being, like I felt like everyone else I talked to, like they were all nice and stuff, but there's a certain kind of fakeness I didn't like. Also, I was really clear about not going to network television. I did not want to do like Fresh Off the Boat or Blackish for disabled people because I wanted to, I well no, and that's no shade to those shows, but I wanted to talk about gay stuff a lot and I wanted to talk about sex and that was really important for me, and that was a non-negotiable. So we went to cable places, and we pitched it. Everyone loved it, and everyone wanted to buy it, but then they all got cold feet, and they didn't buy it. So that was hard, and then we eventually sold it to a digital platform as part of Warner Brothers. And I can't like talk about things officially yet, but it's looking pretty good for we're going to shoot it. Who do you see playing you? I'm starring in it. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm in acting classes right now. That's a real challenge for me. Acting is completely new to me. I don't know what I'm doing. I've literally had one class, and it's humbling. What are the challenges of playing you? It's kind of confusing because 
you're not playing yourself. You're playing a younger version of yourself. You're playing a more exaggerated version of yourself. So it's being able to tap into those nuances and differences and figure out that character and what makes him funny. And so that's interesting. That's the hard part because you really aren't playing yourself. You're playing a character who is you but not really you. It gets kind of confusing. You have to like lay down at a certain point. You get dizzy. You are undoubtedly successful in the field that few people are. A lot of people come here with their spec scripts and everything and say, I want to be on a TV show or work on a TV show. Mm -hmm. You made that happen. I know I'm perceived as successful, but I've also faced so much rejection that it's kind of crazy. I feel like because people don't talk about the rejections that they face, like they don't post it on Instagram, they only post like the deadline article when they got something greenlit. I feel like it's created this like skewed perception of what it means to be successful. And like, I think there's this sort of idea that things come easier for some people or whatever. But in my experience, it's always ebbs and flows. So I wanted to write for television for a really long time. But I kind of knew that I couldn't be a writer's assistant or do any of those traditional pathways because of my disability. So I didn't really set out to do this in a methodical way. But I think it was always in the back of my mind that I would create kind of a platform for myself and become known in that way, like with writing. And then I would parlay that into a book deal and then get an agent for TV. And that's sort of what happened. So when I was in New York, I was really overwriting for the internet because A, you make no money, and B, my whole existence was kind of thinking about what insanely personal aspect of my life had the potential to go viral, which is no way to live. So I was like, okay, I have to write myself out of this corner that I've gotten myself into. And I wrote a spec script about being disabled. It was called GIMP, and I kind of knew that no one was writing that pilot that year. It was also a good way to kind of talk about my disability and all that stuff. Anyway, through that, I got an agent at UTA. I moved to LA two months afterward, not knowing how anything worked. I didn't know when staffing season was. I moved in July. I was like, okay, I'm going to get staffed. And my agent was like, well, network staffing literally just ended. You've come at like a really weird time. Um, but luckily he was like, well, what shows are you watching? And I watched that show Awkward on MTV and he was like, oh, that's staffing right now. And, um, I got a meeting with the showrunners and I got the job. So it actually, I only was here four weeks and then I got a job, which I know is insane and never happens. I feel like I need to go in the witness protection program when I share this story because it's really not how things are done. But yeah, so I wrote on that for two seasons. My book came out and then that year I didn't work at all. I didn't work for a year because the show didn't sell. I couldn't get staffed, and it was a real, real weird existence because everyone was like, oh, my God, you're on fire. Like, I remember, like, that year, like, I was in the Out 100. I had photo shoots and all that stuff. Everyone was like, this year is incredible for you. And I was like, I haven't been able to work in a year. <laughs> no one will hire me. Again, it's something that people just don't talk about. And so that was a very, very difficult year, but it really clued me into the business and how things work. And the reality is that there's ebbs and flows and that because I'm a TV writer, the only thing that's guaranteed is long stretches of unemployment. And it is your job as the writer to kind of write yourself out of that and just constantly be generating like work and material. It's a stressful existence. You never feel like, oh, I can rest easy now. I've made it. Like there's not any of that. So um, after that, I wrote for a TV show uh, called Daytime Divas on VH1. And there I met John Canale and Tracy Post, who worked on Will and Grace. And when we were in the room, that was when the Vote Honey um, video came out. And then Will and Grace was coming back and Tracy and John were like, oh, my God, do you have to go in for this job? Like, you'd be so good for it. And I was like, yeah, right. Like, literally. And like, by the way, before that. There were things that I did that I thought for sure I was going to get. Like when Speechless came out on ABC, I thought, 
I'm getting that job. I'm a disabled comedy writer about a show with a, I'm like, I'm a unicorn. Like, like, hello, what? And I didn't get the job. And that was so crushing. That was really bad because you know, I had feelings about that show. I didn't like that the guy with the disability was literally speechless. But that was based on the creator, Scott Silveri's brother, and his brother couldn't speak. So I understood that. You want to keep it real to life. But there is sort of a specific kind of pain when your stories are being told, but not by the people that it actually happened to. It's like people that it happened by proxy. I'm not saying that those people don't have a right, but when there's no stories like that being told, you kind of want the first story to be told by someone who's experienced it firsthand. I thought for sure I would have gotten that job, and I was so excited about it, and I didn't get it, and that was really crushing, but I was like, okay, then I just kind of like reframed it in my mind. I was like, okay, well, that's because you're meant to do your own show about disability and not work for someone else's and all that stuff. So I've just wrapped Will and Grace, and I'm not going back next season because I'm doing special, so it's scary. Everything is TBD. Everything is sort of, I don't, I'm like a jaded bitch now. I don't trust anything until it actually happens. You know, I'm always just assuming that it's not going to happen, and if it does, it's a miracle. Will and Grace, what was that experience like? It was so surreal. It was crazy because I obviously grew up worshiping it as a closeted gay teenager, so to be a part of it. And seeing these brilliant comedians just act out these jokes that I had written or or whatever, like, was just so, like, mind-boggling to me. It's such an institution. It's such a, it's such a thing. And um, it was overwhelming for me. It was, like, very intense. It took a while for me to feel comfortable there. I just felt like, oh, my God, I'm involved with this iconic thing that I loved. But it was amazing. I think I learned so much. And working with Max Muchnick, who's the co-creator with David Cohan, he has a snap crackle pop brain where like everything he says is just so funny and smart. And you kind of hope that just like by osmosis, like some of it will rub off on you. Being able to go into their office and write a scene with them was sort of just like such a gift to be given that insight. So I loved it. I really did. It was a really special thing to be a part of. I am driven by a need for representation because I feel such pain for my younger self. And I feel like if I had grown up with any kind of gay guy that looked remotely like me or was just imperfect, I think that would have saved me a lot of heartache. And I feel terrible about that. I, I'm, I'm angry about it. You know, I am, I'm frustrated. And I just want to hopefully just write that wrong. And I want to make it easier for anyone coming up who's disabled or just doesn't feel like enough, which is, spoiler, all gay men. I want them to feel seen and I want them to feel heard and I want them to feel valued. And I think that really drives me. I think that really, really drives me. This is Steve Pride bringing you Pride Out Loud, including my conversation with TV writer Ryan O'Connell about his book, I'm Special, and other lies we tell ourselves. Until next time, thanks for listening. A few days ago, Netflix revealed that Special has been renewed for a second season. Well, that's the end of our show. We know you have choices on your radio dial and appreciate your spending time with us. Our thanks to IMRU Radio's executive producer, Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and Director of Distribution and Sparkle, you, Vash Bodhi. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. 
If you are a web designer, social media expert, or just interested in LGBTQI community affairs and would like to volunteer with IMRU, email volunteer at imruradio.org. A little reminder, you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. You can also listen to our podcast, where we'll start presenting longer interviews and content too bodacious to broadcast. And if you want to see us, be sure to check out our promos on the IMRU Radio podcast channel on YouTube. Get some bathtub gin and play me at Charleston, because, baby, we're finally living in the 20s. So 23 skidoo and good night. Good night.